Well, you know, I call my memoir from junkie to judge because in a couple words that sort of shows the arc. And and I, I wanted to show that what you can achieve in recovery is beyond what you can imagine in active addiction. But the truth is that the judge was my job, right? I mean, the most important part of recovery for me is the lack of chaos and the lack of obsession, right? It, that's underneath everything. And, and you're right, recovery is hard, but recovery is hard in the beginning. Recovery gets easier over time. And the truth Absolutely. is active addiction, active substance use disorder is hard forever. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober Podcast, episode 166. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last seven years, we've helped thousands of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we know from experience that it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. Each week, we feature a community voice, just to give you a flavor of the awesomeness of our tribe. Binge drinkers generally seem to have talked themselves out of the fact that they have a drinking problem. They often see themselves as normalish drinkers because it has been normalized in society. And so for me, one of the turning points was really self-responsibility for a drinking problem and that binge drinking is as much of a problem as other um, alcohol use disorders. And I think once binge drinkers realise that, that actually helps them to take steps to start to look at their own patterns of drinking. So if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. My guest this week is an extraordinary woman. She was drinking alcohol at the age of 12 and shooting up with meths by the time she was 17. But not only did she get clean, she went on to qualify as a lawyer and eventually she was appointed a federal judge. I began our interview by asking Mary Beth O'Connor to introduce herself. So I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. I grew up in New Jersey, but I went to Berkeley for college and later law school, and I just never left this beautiful place. Um, I'm actually currently retired. I emphasize I took early retirement. And so right now what I do mostly is writing and advocacy about my story and multiple paths to substance use recovery. I gather that you had a, a rather traumatic upbringing, which eventually led you to an addiction to meths. So can you tell us a little bit more about your story and, and your experience and how it led to addiction? 
I mean, things didn't start out well from from day one. When my mother had me, this is 1961. She's an Irish Catholic unwed mother, which was a huge deal. So after she had me, I actually didn't live with my family. I lived with the nuns for the first six months of my life, which wasn't a great start, I think. Uh, And then she married and I moved in with her. But later for three years from six to nine, I lived with with my great grandmother. Um, She could be violent, but mostly she wasn't really focused on me or, you know, connected to me. But the bigger problem arose when I was nine, when she married my stepfather. And he was really violent with her. He was, you know, violent with me verbally, emotionally, physically, sexually. It it was the kind of household where you just never knew what was going to happen. You know, you could do the same thing 10 times and nine times it was fine. And the 10th time it was the worst thing anyone could possibly do and you would get a beating. So it was just a high stress, unpredictable environment that sort of primed me to look for relief. And when did you start using I picked up my first drug, which was alcohol, when I was 12 years old. And I noticed right away that this was a positive experience, right? That's how it starts. If it wasn't good in the beginning, we wouldn't keep going. Um, But I felt really happy and light. I was giggling with my girlfriend on the floor. And I noticed that this was a new positive emotional experience. And I started pursuing it pretty much right away. I wasn't waiting for alcohol to come to me. I was looking for ways to make it happen. Um, And I moved on really fast. I I moved on to pot, then pills. I did a lot of acid my sophomore year of high school. And then I found meth when I was 16. And that did become my drug of choice. Well, I guess, you know, with a childhood like yours where you never knew where you were. I mean, that's how it sounds to me. The The feeling of relief must have been huge when you started finding substances, really. So so how did you, because you're such a, a high achieving lady, you know, with your career as a judge, how, how did the show stay on the road with all this? You know, were you at college and passing your exams? How did it all work work together? So I I started shooting up meth um, within six months. So when I was 17. And so my senior year of high school, my drug use got increasingly worse. And I did miss a a lot of school for the last few months. But by then I had already been accepted into college. And so I, I managed when I went to college for the first three and a half years, I did better. And I emphasize better. I, I didn't use that much meth, which helped. I mostly used alcohol, sometimes pills, sometimes cocaine, mostly on the weekends. Sometimes it rolled into the week, but I, I did better and I did well in college. And I was even working half time. My family does, doesn't have money. And so I had a part time job and I was going to. Berkeley, which is, you know, a high academic school here. (laughs) But I had this really life-threatening multi-assailant rape in college. And then I moved in with a violent boyfriend and that was it. I just, I couldn't hold it together anymore. I completely lost my grip. I started using meth again and I used for the next 10 years. I did not get sober until I was 32 years old. Were you with a crowd of of drug takers or, or was it solitary a lot of this using? Well, I mean, in, in high school, there was, you know, it was sort of self-selecting, right? That the people who'd use drugs casually, we knew them, but the people that I spent the most time with were the heavier drug users, the people who were using meth and staying up for three or four days at a time. Um, we spent a lot of many, many hours together. In college, it was a, a little bit more 
casual. I was even even with the heavy drug use in high school, I was always on the higher edge of the drug use. There were other people that were using meth on a regular basis that were having conversations with me about how I needed to take a break, how I was, you know, out of control. <laughs> I was using too much. But in college, it was a little bit more toward the casual end, although I still could go off the rails more than others. But in the 10 years when I started using meth again, a lot of that was solitary. You know, I used more and more often Mm -hmm. by myself in my house, sitting at my dining room table, smoking cigarettes and playing solitaire or doing crossword puzzles. It was more and more of an isolated experience, um, in part because I didn't want people to see me when I was at my worst. And I was at my worst a lot. And so, it does get really isolating as time goes by. You're right. And you graduated from Berkeley, okay? I graduated because I, uh, I didn't use meth until January of my senior year, right? And so, and I actually had really good grades in college. And I went to law school straight out of college, but because I had picked up meth again in January, by the time I got there in the fall, my drug use was completely out of control and I couldn't handle law school. And so I withdrew. And that was really an agonizing loss. Every time I drove past that building, it was like just uh, intense, agonizing pain. It was it was ho- horrible, but I did have to give it up. And and even with work for those ten years, I mean, I couldn't hold a job. Every job I had was less money and less responsibility, and I held it for less time. And I described it as working my way down the corporate ladder, you know. So um, because Sounds I was. Like just- it. Yes, I was using so much, I just couldn't hold a job at all. So my last job at 32, despite my Berkeley degree and good grades, was word processing. And I held it for nine months. Right. And that was really like a pretty, pretty long time considering the state that I was in. So the age of 32, was that your rock bottom? Did something bad happen or you just thought, I've had enough? I did have a pretty low bottom and it was really a combination of factors. I, After I lost that word processing job, I couldn't even get it together to put a resume together again. That's how exhausted I was. I was having physical problems. My body was really showing signs of wear of all that meth. I was really hopeless. I was exhausted beyond exhausted, and my partner was ready to throw me out. So it was that combination that really made me say, okay, well, maybe I should try rehab. (laughs) Was your partner a drug user? He was a drug user, but in a much more casual way. And when we were dating, he thought that I was like him, you know, because I only saw him on the weekend and I tried hard to give him that impression. But once we moved in and he saw how serious it was, he realized I was in a whole different category. Yeah, Sure, sure. You were hardcore. You went off to rehab. Did he stick by you, incidentally? He didn't terminate the relationship while I was in rehab. He let me come home. We did couples counseling, a lot of you know therapy. And as he saw that I was actually stabilizing and getting better, he just sort of decided to wait and see. And now I have 29 years of sobriety and we are still together. So that, oh, that works. What a lovely yeah. story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he drinks a little, you know, but that's yeah. pretty much it. We're older now. You know, for him, it was older more- Older Exactly. It's more, he was more that normal transition that a lot of people yeah. sort of just, just taper sure. out of it over time, right? Exactly. Yeah. He grew up. <laughs> That's right. He grew out of it. He grew out of it. <laughs> yeah. Takes take some of us a little longer. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. So 32 years old, you went to rehab. Tell me about rehab. How was that? 
in my mind, um, I'm going into rehab for medical treatment, right? That That's how I was thinking about it. And I went to rehab and every day in my rehab, which is common, especially at the time, they would do a step study. So the Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, that's a 12-step program. You know, they have these 12 steps that you're supposed to do. So in my rehab, every day they would do a step. They would read the step. And they would either read the AA big book, like their basic text is called the big book about that step, or they would read the Narcotics Anonymous text about the step. And then we would talk. And so on my first day there, they happened to be doing step three, which is made a decision to turn my will and my life over. I think it's to the God of my understanding. And so that was the step. That was the discussion. So I raised my hand, you know, like the good student I was. And I said, well, you know, what about me? I'm an atheist. And they did say, it does not have to be God. It can be any higher power. But I told them I don't believe in a higher power and I'm not going to turn my will of my life over. And then as I read more, I didn't agree with powerless step. I really didn't like to focus on defects, but they were adamant and vehement that this was the only way to recover. It was the only option. And if I did not comply, they literally, they told me I was going to fail. And so it was a real shocker for me to find out that I was in a place that was only offering one option and it was an option that wasn't going to work for me. So that was a big surprise and it was a big dilemma. (laughs) Absolutely. So what happened? I mean, I believe them because, you know, they were the experts. And so I I really thought about it. I mean, partly I was afraid. It was hard to trust my own judgment because I'm looking at 20 years of bad decision making. And, you know, and I know my brain is not functioning properly. That it's, you know, foggy. My cognition is not at its peak. But I was also pretty confident that this was not going to be the right fit. So what I decided to do was to just keep my ears and my mind open and look for the ideas I thought I could use and just ignore everything else. And and so I yeah. mean I was active. I, I read all of the big book. I read all of the NA text. I, I read everything in the classes. You know, rehab, you go to a lot of different classes every day. I was active mm-hmm. and I was really looking for the ideas that I thought I could use. And there were, you know, I mean, they taught us some really helpful things in rehab. And there were parts of 12 steps that I found useful, or I would reframe them. Like the step one is that yeah. you're powerless over your addiction. And I, I didn't agree with that. Um, but what I thought about was, well, I can agree I'm powerless to moderate, like Mary Beth can't moderate, you know? So I, I did things like that. I tried to reformulate it and reframe it and pull out the parts I thought could help me. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I also went to AA and uh, it wasn't for me. And it was actually that that very point, the powerless. I was like, oh, what do you mean I'm powerless? So it didn't really suit, suit me at all. And and what I don't agree is this, if you don't do it this way, then you'll fail. That's That's terrible. And it's so unnecessary these days because there are many other pathways. But admittedly, when you were there, there, there probably weren't. AA or nothing then, but these days there's so much, so many other pathways, which is wonderful. I was interviewing a guy just last week for the podcast. I said, you know, how did you recover? And he said, oh, I did a kind of hybrid recovery. Mm -hmm. He said, I did a bit of AA, I did a bit of therapy, I did a bit of um, sobriety community, and I did a bit of reading. And I thought that was lovely. And we can all try various things and take what resonates with us and build our own model, I think. 
the more individual it, it is, the better. And that is the current term, hybrid or patchwork. But And by the way, there were options then. They just didn't tell me. Yeah. So when when okay. I got oh. when I got home, I decided to go to the, the library to do the research because I emphasize it's 1994. There's no Google at the time. I mean, luckily now people can Ooh. find it easy. But there oh. were options that I found. There was Women for Sobriety, which is a, a self empowerment program. And then I, yeah. I found Rational Recovery, which exists a little, but today it's Smart Recovery. And I found yes. SOS, which today is basically Life Ring Secular Recovery, which I'm on the board for. So SOS exists a little, but Life Rings broke off and it's much bigger. And so even then there were options. And I did exactly what the gentleman said. I, I went, to, I read all the materials. I went to meetings for all of yeah. the programs and I continued to pull out the ideas I thought I could use and I synthesized them. And today Life yeah. Ring would call that building a personal recovery plan or the new yeah. terminology is hybrid or patchwork plan. I love it. That's definitely the best. Take what works for you, I say to people. I support 12 steps when it's the right fit for people. The problem mm. is mm. when we tell people that it's the only way, which isn't true, yeah. and it's not even a better way because there's been a study that compared AA, Life Ring, Women for Sobriety, and SMART and found basically they're equally effective. And so what's important yeah. is people find where they fit best. I just encourage people to read up on them. And, you know, one or two of them is going to sound like my people are in that meeting. You know, go there, start exactly. there. But I think that nearly all of the rehabs, to my knowledge anyway, tend to recommend the 12 steps. And then when you leave, you're supposed to go to meetings, aren't you? Today, in America anyway, there are about 40% of the rehabs are still only 12 steps. The rest of them usually right. will offer 12 steps, but they will also tell you about other options. And the other part here anyway that's problematic is that 12 steps can be so embedded with the court system that a yes. lot of times if people are on probation or parole or say in family court for visitation of, of their children, sometimes they're not told to go to peer support meetings. They're ordered to go specifically to to 12 steps, AA or NA. And that's problematic because you're sending some people to the program that's not the best fit for them. That's undermining their odds of success. So some of those things definitely still go on. Yeah. And of course, the, the fact that you're sent somewhere, you're not that likely to succeed, aren't, aren't you? Because you're going to be resentful <laughs> that you've been sent there. Whereas if you want to get sober and if you want to go of your own volition, it's a different story. Okay, well, that's kind of encouraging, isn't it, to, to hear that rehabs are beginning to talk about other methods as well. And, and as for the court system, well, can't, can't you have some influence there? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And I do now train judges and lawyers. And one of the things I talk about is the is the problem of mandating 12 steps and not making it open to all peer support groups. And so there, it is, there is an opportunity for education and to make sure that they're aware that there are other options. You're absolutely right. These programs now are all online. Yeah, well, that's what we do at Tribe Sober. We run workshops online and we have a membership that meet online and we have people from all over the world. So it's, it's wonderful. The online system has obviously completely changed the sobriety landscape. So 29 years in recovery. Wow. Well, let's talk about your life, actually. How, how did your life change when you got clean? Well, you know, I call my memoir from junkie to judge because in a couple words that sort of shows the arc and, and I, I wanted to show that 
what you can achieve in recovery is beyond what you can imagine in active addiction. But the truth is that the judge was my job, right? I mean, the most important part of recovery for me is the lack of chaos and the lack of obsession, right? It, that's underneath everything. And, and you're right, recovery is hard, but recovery is hard in the beginning. Recovery gets easier over time. And the truth Absolutely. is active addiction, active substance use disorder is hard forever. So really, although recovery may be challenging, in the long run, it is actually the easier of the two it alternatives. Is, yes. <laughs> and as far as you're concerned, I doubt whether you would have lived much longer the way that you were going. Yes, there's that. I mean, there's the life-threatening side, but also the life-altering physical things that can yeah. happen. You know, the, I mean, alcohol, for example, is vicious on the body. And even though there's a, a lot of uh, problems with opiate overdoses, uh, you know, the rates have gone really high, but still alcohol c kills more people worldwide than any other drug. It's it's really hard on the body. And so it, it, there is the benefit, the physical benefits, but also the emotional benefits, the, the life-altering benefits. People are ambivalent in the beginning of recovery. I think that's normal. I think there's sort of this false yeah. paradigm that your people are either 100% committed to sobriety or, you know, why would they start recovery? But most people in my experience, myself included, are ambivalent. Yeah, One too. day you're committed, the next day you're questioning it or you're not sure you can do it. And that's normal. Don't wait for some, you know, bright light. I'm, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure beyond short before you get started because most of us don't get there. And I even used, I used three times in my first five months. Abstinence perfection is another myth about recovery. Some people do it, sure. but the majority don't. Most people have a pattern of increasing sobriety lengths and persistence is what does it because usually it's not 100% perfect abstinence from day one. Yeah. I mean, one th I think it's AA that say actually um, progress, not perfection. We've just got to keep going and, and not question the decision, really. Just keep doing our best and, and we'll get there. But yeah, I mean, I did it because, you know, my alcohol was ruining my health and I realized it was a complete no brainer. I knew that I had no choice if I wanted to, to live, but I just saw it as in a very negative way. You know, I thought, oh, well, I'll have to do this, but my life's going to be pretty dull. But I guess I've done lots of partying and now I'm quite old, so I'll just stay <laughs> home and read books, that kind of thing. I really imagine sobriety to be a very dark and grey place. But what you said uh, really resonated with me just then. You said when you start out, you just cannot, cannot imagine how good your life will get eventually. Maybe not in the first year. The first year is still hard work. But then things start changing. There's, there's so much more to recovery than not drinking, isn't there? Your life just starts evolving. I mean, for me, the, the partying part of using was years before I got sober, right? I really wasn't out having a good time with my friends. No. The truth is, I was mostly not showing up for parties and fun activities because I wasn't sort of exactly at the right point in my using cycle, right? I wasn't high enough, but not too high or hadn't been up for three days and was crashing. So it wasn't like I was You were at your fun. dining room table. <laughs> yes, I was at my dining room table. And the other thing that, that's really sort of a critical factor about sobriety for me is I had that trauma history. And I tried to do therapy a few times when I was using, but I could never get very far because my the drugs were like a wall between me and myself. And so for a of lot of us, we had underlying pain that caused us to turn to the drugs. But to resolve that, 
for me, I really needed to be sober because I needed to be able to connect to my feelings, to be able to connect to my true thoughts, to be able to revisit my history in an accurate way. And I couldn't do any of those things when I was using drugs. I was too disconnected. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, not only does sobriety enable us to connect with other people, but it enables us to connect with ourselves, as you said. So when you got sober, the first few months, we feel very emotional because we've been kind of numbing all that away. And in your case, there was so much trauma there. Did you really feel extremely raw when you were in early sobriety? I mean, I was glad that I was in a long-term program and away from home and surrounded by other women who were going through sort of the same process that helped me. And also most of those women had trauma histories. And so there was sort of that mutual understanding. On the other hand, I will say that rehab is a bit like being with women who are a bunch of, you know, out of control teenagers emotionally because, because we've all stopped drugs. We're living together, which we're not used to. We have to interact and coordinate, you know, things that we're doing and it, arguments erupt. And so it is, it can be a challenging environment for that reason um, because we don't have inter good interpersonal skills. We don't know how to handle our feelings. And so that definitely yeah. went on. Um, on the other hand, I just a week ago had lunch with my two roommates from rehab 29 years ago. I'm still in touch with them. And so those relationships can really be strong. But it was definitely a, an emotional roller coaster. And it was an emotional roller coaster for a long time after. It took me much longer to get my trauma under control, my trauma symptoms, PTSD that I didn't even know I had, you know, extreme anxiety that I thought was just normal, proportional fears or, or concerns, what were really obsessive thinking that were getting in my way. That process took a lot longer to get stabilized than my substance use recovery. By two and a half or three years, I really felt stable in my, in my SUD recovery. I never really struggled with it after that. But the anxiety and the PTSD took longer to get balanced to where yeah. I was really, um, as I say, mostly recovered from that. But you were getting uh, therapy by this time, I hope, that was, was working for you. Yeah, I got a little bit in rehab. And when I got home, I did individual therapy. And I, it took me a couple of tries, but I found someone with trauma expertise. And, and that really helped. And then my husband and I were in couples counseling and I was on meds for a while. And then after two years of individual, I went into a, a therapy group for women with trauma histories. And that was really a big step forward for me. It was very enlightening to see the connections that they were making between their current behavior or their current feelings and the trauma, things that I hadn't really connected. And just the response, the interactions, it, it gave me a lot more insight into sort of the ripples from my own trauma by being in that group of women. Fantastic. So tell me how you got your career back on track. Presumably, <laughs> you didn't have to go back to being a word processor. Well, I started out low though. Now, so I'm 32. I have a horrible resume. I mean, a horrible resume, even with my Berkeley degree. And also I was just not ready. When I got home at five months sober, I really wasn't, it wasn't like I was ready to leap towards some career job that my diploma theoretically qualified me for. So my first job out of rehab was a low-level part-time temporary administrative job because it's, that's all I was ready for. I had never actually gotten up and gone to work every day on time and done a good job and done a day after day after day. I was 32 and I had never done it. I needed time to sort of get in the rhythm of that and get my feet underneath me. And then my second job was a 
permanent mid-level administrative job. And then I got a job at a bigger company where I, I was a supervisor and then promoted. And then six and a half years sober, I went to Berkeley Law. I went back to law school. And then I worked at a big law firm, and then I worked, did class action work for the federal government. And in 2014, I was appointed a federal administrative law judge. And I did that until 2020 when I took early retirement. So I really like to emphasize the dates. At six years sober, I went to law school. At 20 years sober, I was appointed a federal judge because it was really always about what's sort of the right next step for me? What's the right next professional step? And how do I get myself prepared for that job? It was incremental. It's not like I got sober and thought, I'm going to be a judge one day. <laughs> I thought, I hope I can hold a job now. That's what I thought when I got sober. I hope I can hold a job now. <laughs> oh, well, well done. I mean, what an inspiration you are. So let's talk about your book. Why did you want to write a book and who is it for? Was it cathartic? Yeah. I mean, so when I was appointed a judge, it was kind of a natural time of reflection. How the heck did I go from a 17-year-old shooting meth, you know, to a federal judge? And so I started thinking maybe my story could be useful. I felt like a lot of memoir, they sort of jump right into the addiction. And I wanted to show what led up to it. What, why it made sense to me to pick up alcohol at 12 and be shooting meth at 17. And then on the other end, I felt like a lot of memoirs go, well, you know, I went to a couple meetings and it was great. And that's not how recovery works, as we both know. And so I wanted to show the process. So I get through the first three years of my recovery. 30% of my book is recovery. And I just wanted to show how I thought about it as I was building a program that worked for me and the interplay of the trauma recovery and the substance recovery and the relationship recovery. And then at the end, I have some guidelines and a checklist that could really help newcomers think about what plan might work for them. And I think it's also helpful for friends and family. There's some basic concepts around recovery that I think are useful. That sounds amazing. It sounds like, like a workbook as well as a description of what you went through. In the meantime, I was also like I published some opinion pieces in the Wall Street Journal and the Los Angeles Times and other places about multiple paths to recovery. Um, I'm on the board for Life Ring Secular Recovery. I'm on the board for She Recovers Foundation. Um, so I was sort of trying to find a place to be of service to the recovery community while I was running the book. And I view the book really as part of my advocacy work at this point, um, just to yeah. make people where they have recovery support group options and there's multiple ways to get sober. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at TribeSober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at TribeSober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. If someone's listening to this and they know that they've got to stop drinking or stop using or, or stop doing both, what would you advise them? How do you think they can get started? Well, it sounds like, you know, organizations like yours can be good resources for people. I know it can be good to really do an analysis about where you are. We, we don't talk today about substance use disorder being sort of a on and off. It's, it's, it's a, a scale, right? Mild, moderate, severe. Yeah. And there are ways to think about where do I fall on that scale? Not everyone needs inpatient treatment. Some people can do outpatient treatment. Some people don't need that kind of treatment at all. They might be able to use 
their peer support group or, or other supports, recovery coaches, that kind of thing. So in the back of my book, it actually does help you think through that. But in general, I would really think about how severe is my condition? Do I think I, do I, think I need to go inpatient? And can I? Because some people would like to, but they can't for financial or family reasons. Look at the different peer support group options. Find the one that looks like the right fit. You can go to those kind of meetings and start getting ideas from other people about how to approach things and building that sober support network that can be so helpful for people. Yeah, I mean, the heart of what we do is our membership because we feel that having a community of people at different stages. Some of us in that community are several years sober and then we have a lot of brand new people. So we can encourage the people just starting and say, well, when we were at that stage, this is what we did. Yeah, I like what you said about the fact that we've got the um, kind of alcohol use disorder scale now. I mean, that is so useful. Before, you were either an alcoholic, you were homeless in the park, you'd lost everything, or you were fine. Yet millions of us are in between those two extremes. And there's such a societal stigma against the alcoholic, which is why I don't agree with this labelling business. But now the fact that we can recognise that we're all at different stages of this dependence scale. Some people are absolutely fine, but millions of people are almost alcoholics and functioning alcoholics. I was a functioning alcoholic for decades, you know, holding down a very responsible job and coming home and drinking at least a bottle of wine at night. And so were a lot of my friends. We thought nothing of it, really, until we got a bit older and started noticing the effects having on our body. You know, I got breast cancer. I started having blackouts. And eventually I started thinking, hmm, I wonder if this bottle of wine at night is doing me any good. Yeah. Well, and and that's right. I mean, a lot of people now we talk. You know, there's that dry dry January people do around the world mm. where they take a break, and it's not always about it's not always about do I qualify as having a alcohol or other substance use disorder. It's really about is the substance interfering with me living my best life. And if it is, it yeah. doesn't matter whether you meet the criteria, right? It's just well, then maybe you should reduce it or eliminate it because it's interfering with you having being the best, the the, the most fabulous person you can be then what's it doing? It's having a negative impact. So reduce or get rid of it, even if you don't meet the criteria. Yeah. Absolutely. Because if it doesn't destroy you and it doesn't destroy most people that use it, it will prevent most people from reaching their potential. I so agree with the living, are you living your best life approach? I say to people, if you're listening to this podcast, if you're thinking about it, then just do it. Try a year of sobriety. You can always go back to drinking. I don't meet anybody that says to me, oh, I wish I'd never stopped drinking. (laughs) (laughs) I meet, it's true. I meet people that say, oh, I was sober for a year and it was so fantastic. I just want to get back there. But I thought I'd be able to moderate, so I started drinking again. That seems to be uh, quite a regular pattern that people are sober for a while. They love it, and then they think, well, I feel great. I can have a glass of champagne at that wedding. And then it gradually goes downhill from there. And then they think, oh, I just want to go back. (laughs) So I think we have to accept if we are in that dependent area, then we can't touch the stuff at all. I know I can't. Um, you, you mentioned in your book, you've got a chapter for the loved ones. I think that's, that's 
great because I get quite a lot of um, emails from people that say, I'm so worried about my wife or, you know, my husband's doing this. And I find it quite difficult to know what to say to them. And I I, I usually say, actually, that AA have gotten Al Anon and I recommend that. What do you say to them in your book? In the guidelines section, I talk about some of the basic concepts that I think it's important for friends and family to know. For example, I think friends and family expect perfect abstinence or they think the person is failing or it just it creates a fear in them, right? I mean, one thing I do emphasize is I'm friends and family too. I'm sure you are as well. All of us with the substance use disorder have friends and family that struggle. So it can be frightening if the person isn't perfectly abstinent, but if the family knows that that's normal, what I encourage is for them to look at the bigger picture. You know, is the person still committed to trying? Are they still persevering? Are they still using some supports? Are they doing anything to sort of double down on their efforts if it's not succeeding what they're doing? But don't overreact to a slip because it's common. And the other emphasis for me is really about patience. And that's for those of us with a substance use disorder and the friends and family. I think all, the yeah. whole group wants recovery to be faster than realistically yeah. it's going to be. You're so right. Yeah. And so it can be helpful to really, again, look at where have they progressed. I will say for me, when I was getting sober, my natural inclination was always to see what I had lost, my imperfections, what other people had that I didn't. I had to sort of force myself to stop and look backward and see, well, what have I accomplished in three months or six months or a year? And I think it's a technique that can help the family as well. Look for the the forward momentum, even if it's not perfect. Um, But the other thing is I, I like that we now with friends and family, we don't emphasize that tough love concept, you know, cut the person off. But the reality is that the data shows if the person with the disorder has strong friends and family's connections, their odds of success are better. It doesn't mean that the friends and family can't set boundaries or that they have to um, let themselves be yelled at or give money indefinitely. But if you can maintain the positive, loving connection and let them know that you'll be there to help them when they're ready for help and, you know, you'll offer whatever you can, that can really help people feel loved and feeling loved and valued can make it more likely that you're going to succeed on the sobriety path. Yeah, I read an article the other day by a guy called Will Krause, who is just writing a book, actually. He said something about the addict's brain, and he said the addict's brain is exceptional. And he went on to explain why it's so exceptional. But it was lots of positive comments really about how people that get addicted, they do have an exceptional brain. And I thought that's that's quite a nice angle because anything that we can say to addicts who usually feel, I mean, I know I did very low self-esteem and they think, oh, I'm a broken person. Why can't I just drink normally like that person? Anything we can say to people to make them feel better about themselves, because we have to learn to love ourselves, don't we? Yes. And the other thing I will say is that one of the things that the the way the brain operates to sort of reinforce our, our addiction, to reinforce our substance use, the, the brain, those same brain processes reinforce sobriety. And so when you start making positive choices and building positive habits of, you know, of not drinking or of going to work every day on time or, or being there for your child, those positive habits are rewiring your brain too in a positive direction. It's yeah. part of why sobriety gets easier and easier with time is because your brain's healed. You're not throwing the chemicals in, but you're also rewiring it from your new positive behavior. And so that I think people underestimate that the same process that reinforced their addiction will actually reinforce their recovery. 
of course, building habits. So really, it's it's replacing that neural pathway we had for the addiction with a, a healthy neural pathway, isn't it? And yes. I love what you said about patients, because I often get people that have been members with us, and they've been sober for maybe three weeks, and they say, I still feel rubbish. <laughs> And they've been drinking for 40 years. And I have to explain, you know, it takes a while. So you do have to be patient. And in fact, I interviewed a a doctor from a rehab once. And she told me that for every year that we we drank, we should allow one month of recovery. And I thought that was such an interesting statistic. And it might seem daunting if it's too long for people that have been drinking a long time. But it's also rather hopeful because it means that you keep on feeling better and better. I mean, my recovery, according to her rule of thumb, was three and a half years long. My recovery came in two stages in that first year, really, because I was expecting uh, to look better, to feel better, to have more energy. And I had all of those things by six months sober. But what I wasn't expecting was deep feeling of joy and a lot of creativity and just a a sense that my life was opening up in ways that it never would have done if I'd carried on drinking. So to me, there were two kind of levels. But yeah, I mean, and I I still feel as if I'm uh, in recovery and, and feeling better all the time. My first six months, I I did have a period of depression as well of of going through, just as you mentioned, ups and downs of thinking, oh, have I really done the right thing? But by that time, people were saying, oh, we're so proud of you. (laughs) So I thought, oh, better keep going with this. So I really pushed myself (laughs) through. And I'm so glad that I did. But just like to mention that because I I think it's the dopamine, isn't it? Because if you've been relying on substances to make you feel good and then they're all gone, you just get this flatness. And and we tell people now to get a project, get some get engaged in something. If they're writing a book, perhaps, or setting up Tribe Sober, that was my project. And once you get engaged in something like that, it gets that those happy brain chemicals triggered, I think. That's true. And the other thing I will say is that I do think it's important for many of us to get a, a evaluation as to whether we have another mental health uh, issue that needs to be resolved. I mean, having yeah. depression, underlying depression, underlying anxiety or other types of mental health issues is common. It can be often a form of self-medicating or yeah. it's, it's what caused the, the trauma that caused us to pick up is unresolved. And so we still, I had, I had PTSD, I had severe anxiety. And the sooner we start addressing those areas as well, it's going to make our recovery faster and more stable because it should be a two-pronged attack and that will help people get to a more stable place faster. Um, but you're right. I, I've seen brain scans about comparing a, a brain, let's say on, on meth. Uh, so a regular brain, a brain on meth, uh, a meth uh, three months sober, six months sober, a year, two years. And it's really not until around two years or so that the brain starts getting close to looking like the normal non-using brain. It takes a while. But you're, but I like that you wow. say that it's, that it's better and better because it isn't like it's terrible yeah. and then one day it's great. It's, no, you know, every month no. on average better. Every, you know, f- you're going to see progress as you move along. And so try to stay focused on the progress and not like I did, which was really just overly aware of the negative. Um, it's good to notice your improvement, to congratulate yourself on your improvement, to see your new improved behavior, um, to pay attention on your growth can make 
make you, I think, feel sort of more confident about your likelihood of long-term success. And it's really, recovery is really a way of building up skills to handle all of your life, right? I mean, we're really sort of looking at where where am I, where do I want to go, and what's my plan to get there? And that's how you deal with all issues, relationship, professional, you know, any area that you want to work on. It's this sort of the same skill set that you're going to use in building your sobriety. And so it's just strengthening you to handle life in general, which is a it, which is a nice extra bonus. Yeah, and I think it does wonders for our self-esteem because we think, well, if I could do that, I can do pretty much anything. We say that sobriety is a superpower, <laughs> meaning that meaning yeah. that it gives us courage to tackle other projects. And you start start looking at other aspects of your life as well, don't you? Am I, am I eating right? Am I exercising enough? Just addressing things that we, we just can't be bothered with if we're busy using. So I'm definitely going to go and read your book now. You're such an interesting woman. Where can people find it? It's on Amazon and, and all the usual sites. And there's the paperback book as well as uh, an ebook and an audio book. So all the options are available. My website is junkytojudge.com and I answer any message that someone sends me. So if you, if I can be of any value, if you have any question, feel free to message me. And then my Twitter is at Mary Beth O underscore. And I really work hard to make my Twitter useful. Okay. So I try yes. to include re- recovery ideas, but also articles about different perspectives on recovery, new studies about the data and the science of recovery, different techniques like for friends and family. So I try to make my Twitter feed be actually a useful tool and uh, hopefully people can follow me there. Thank you so much for the share. What an amazing story. Let's pull out some key points. Mary Beth had a traumatic childhood, which included an abusive stepfather. She felt instant relief when she picked up her first alcoholic drink at the tender age of 12. Even while she was still at school, she was smoking pot, taking pills and acid, and at 17, she was shooting up meths. But in spite of this hectic drug taking, she managed to get accepted at college. She was at college and working part-time when everything fell apart. That was due to a combination of a life-threatening rape and an abusive boyfriend. Mary Beth used meths for the next decade, not getting clean until the age of 32. During this decade, she was busy working her way down the corporate ladder, as she puts it. And due to her drug use, she was working in jobs way below her ability. She hit rock bottom when she lost yet another job and couldn't even raise the energy to put together a resume to get the next one. Her partying days were long gone by now, and most of her drug use took place when she was alone, sitting at the kitchen table. She tried some therapy, but as she puts it, the drugs had put a wall between me and myself, so therapy was ineffective. Her partner was threatening to leave her, so she decided to go to rehab. The rehab was based on the 12 steps and was not a good fit for Mary Beth. She was an atheist and certainly wouldn't agree that she was powerless. But whenever she raised her objections to any of the 12 steps, she was closed down and told that this was the only way she could recover. Of course, these days there are many paths to recovery, including Tribe Sober. So at the rehab, it was very much my way or the highway. So as a result, Mary Beth kept quiet 
and she became very selective in the ideas that she took on board. She became master of the reframe. So instead of step one, which says I am powerless over my addiction, she rephrased it into I am powerless to moderate. So many of us spend years stuck in the moderation trap. So accepting that we are powerless to moderate will save us a lot of heartache in the long run. It's a major step forward that day that you realize you can't moderate. I referred to a podcast interview I did with British journalist Sam Delaney, who built his own hybrid recovery model. That podcast was episode 153 and it came out in March 2023. I'll put the link in the show notes. That's exactly what Mary Beth did. She built her own hybrid recovery model. And in fact, she recommends that to other people. I loved what she said about recovery being hard, but it gets easier. Whereas active addiction is much harder and it can last forever. We agreed that this journey is about progress, not perfection, and that very few people get it right from day one. Mary Beth certainly had a couple of slip-ups during those early months. And of course, the secret is to just keep trying, to remember that there's no such thing as failure, only feedback. Mark up your sober stretches and never question the decision. If you'd like a copy of our annual tracker, just email membership at tribesober.com and we'll send you one. Early sobriety was an emotional roller coaster for Mary Beth, and it was a couple of years before she felt stable. She had a lot of trauma to deal with, which left her with severe anxiety and PTSD. So a couple of years to become emotionally stable. And if that seems a long time, then just remember the rule of thumb that it takes a month of recovery for every year that we drank. For more on that, go to Tribe Sober episode 61, which came out in September 2021. There you'll find my interview with the rehab doctor, Dr. Dawn. I'll put the link in the show notes. In spite of the long road to recovery facing her, Mary Beth began to get her career back on track. She started with a part-time admin job and then a higher level admin job and then a supervisory role in a large company. And at six and a half years sober, she was accepted back into Berkeley Law School. She went on to work as a lawyer in a big law firm and in 2014 she was appointed a judge. She took early retirement in 2020 and these days she gives her time to advocacy in the recovery space. As she says, we need to be patient. Everybody expects recovery to be faster than it is. But we need to remember that just as addiction rewires our brains in a negative way, the positive habits we build in recovery will build new pathways. Mary Beth's book is called From Junkie to Judge and it's available from Amazon. This book is a searing memoir, which includes guidelines for people wanting to quit, as well as some advice for their families. You can follow Mary Beth on Twitter. I'll put her handle in the show notes, but it's at Mary Beth, capital O, underscore. And her Twitter feed is very engaged and packed with useful information. So let me end by reading you a five-star review that we received for the Tribe Sober podcast. It's from one of our lovely tribe members, Maya Acosta. So Maya says, thank you, Tribe Sober. This podcast helped to get me sober. 
I stopped drinking July 2022 and I'm now approaching one year of sobriety. I joined the membership and connected with the support group. Hearing testimonies on the podcast helps me feel like I'm not alone. Thank you, Janet. Oh, well, thank you, Mayor. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our tribe. And well done on your first soberversary, which is round the corner. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a moment to leave a five-star review. We love to receive them, of course, but it also means that more people will find out about the podcast. And that's really our mission, to reach more and more people who need us. As I record this, it's June, so if anyone is up for a dry July challenge, just hop over to tribesober.com and you'll find all the info on the homepage. That's it from me. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain, and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.